1: Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin'
0: Jr. with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, how are you, man? Conrad could be better. We're in Huntsville in Conrad's palatial estate. Man, this is a, this guy, this man cave is. I could live here, Conrad. Yeah, we've had fun down here, and
1: uh, we're gonna have fun talking about a great topic that went down 30 years ago today. How's that for timing? Of course, we're talking about Clash of the Champions 10, Texas Shootout, February 6, 1990 from the memorial coliseum in corpus christi it draws a sellout three thousand fans and a thirty thousand dollar house <laughs> but you want to talk about a loaded for bear card this is a who's who on this one
0: yeah it's a lot of hall of famers in this card and interesting time going through a transition period uh i think ollie anderson at this time was in charge of creative so like he was the booker at this time and and, and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with Oli's booking it's just the fact that you make changes and it affects a lot of different people creatively and so forth and so on. So it's a it's an interesting time for all of us. I worked the show with Cornette, Jim Cornette, always did a great job. Uh, and people nowadays can see a little bit different. Uh, watching this show back, was, you see so many faces that you miss. And uh, it's, it's going to be fun today.
1: It will. So Jim and I actually had a chance to uh, to watch a lot of this show together. Uh, and we've got a playing in the background uh, as we come to you today. And everybody was watching this one, man. It got a 4.5 rating, a 6.8 share, which means it was viewed uh, in 2.42 million homes on an average quarter hour. Those are great ratings, even today in 2020, Jim. Yeah,
0: absolutely good ratings. And uh, I, I just, you know, we had an un, we had a product that didn't wasn't at the height of social media. This would have been a lot better. Uh, uh this the whole brand would have been better in today's marketplace with so much information flow and opinions and and uh and people paying attention more than anything and having a platform to speak their mind. But uh this is an interesting show. You know, Dr. Death, my old friend Steve Williams, Dr. Death uh you got a little glimpse of him, Conrad. You said you hadn't watched that much of his work. Uh you got a little glimpse of him uh, uh in this in this show in one on one in a one on one match. Uh he was certainly extraordinary, amazing 300-pound, pure athlete. Well, I'm glad we're talking about
1: Dr. Death. We just saw his vignette, and I want to circle back to that. But uh, before we clicked record tonight, and we were enjoying some fine Moe's Barbecue, uh, next time you're in, Huntsville, you should check that out. We uh, we talked about Dr. Death because I was curious to get your take because whenever I ask a hardcore wrestling fan you know, about their favorite Dr. Death match, they always reference his stuff from Japan. But I had a feeling that you would go... Uh, with something from the Watts era, and you recommended his match uh, for the UWF title with Big Bubba Rogers.
0: Right? Yeah, it was great. Uh, uh, hard hitting. The uh, Doc and and uh, Ray, great. You know, this was before he came the Big Boss Man. Uh, you know, Dusty got him over big time as, uh before he became the yeah, the other Big Boss fan, uh, He was Big Bubba, right? And Big Bubba got uh, got over, and Dusty. That was a part of Dusty's creation. So I've uh, I'm looking forward to this situation. But uh, Doc is a his love, he did have great work with Masawa and all these dudes in all sure. Japan. He did that that work was awesome. But we're seeing him now uh, in a in a singles match uh, and uh, against a Samoan and he he's just he's he, he's sharp. He's crisp. He's fundamentally sound and everything he does looks like it might hurt really bad. Yeah.
1: Can't argue that. And that's one of the things I want to ask about is what really stuck out in this is the way they tried to explain the Dr. Death persona. That we saw him throw a Zubaz-clad Tom Zink over his shoulder, sit him down on a gurney, pretend to do some chest compressions, then make a goofy face as the ambulance pulls away.
0: Not his forte, Conrad.
1: It, it just felt like, you know, me and you talked about this, you know, before we clicked record, about how the graphics while they in hindsight probably look fairly hokey and silly especially like the uh the wild thing rap video that we're going to see a few promotions for because of course we're plugging that pay-per-view coming up in three weeks but they were particularly proud of their uh, technological improvements to the presentation and i feel like they're trying to almost keep up with the Joneses in, in that regard with the WWF. And I think that's even what the Dr. Death skit came off like is without a doubt a, a poor man's boss man vignette or yep. something like that. Yeah.
0: It was, it was some guys look, vignettes are a tremendous tool that's evergreen. They right. work just as well today as they did 30 years ago when we're watching this show here. Uh, But it's just a, a situation where, the the, you got to see what the topic is and how you're presenting somebody don't present doc as a comedian or an entertainer he's an athlete he's a killer and that's if you put him in that light and leave him there you're in pretty good shape as we see the first appearance here on this show with uh, a woman uh the late nancy Benoit comes to ringside beautiful uh what a lovely person she was uh interacting with oliver humperdinck and And they go back a long way through Kevin Sullivan and all that stuff back in the day in Florida and so forth. So going back and watching these shows, folks, for me, again, I've never seen this show before. I I, I was there, I broadcast it live, but I've never gone back and watched it. So this is really nostalgic for me to see all these guys, you know, Doc's not with us any longer. Uh, Cancer killed him. And uh, when I did the eulogy at his funeral, Conrad, I, I didn't even recognize him. He weighed about 180. Wow, yeah, it was just cancer just it just uh eradicated him, but he had that great spirit till the very end and uh and then he think I know Stan Hansen did a, another eulogy eulogy there, and he said the uh, first thing Stan said in a loud booming voice is, no more pain because Doc suffered immensely uh while I was you know in the in the battle of this cancer, so it's just emotional watching to see him and you wonder how good he could have been you know when we brought him to w w e we thought he would be a great opponent for Steve Williams. The other Steve Williams, Steve Austin, it just, we never got that far down the road.
1: Yeah, I know we're getting a sidebar to Dr. Death here, but I'm glad to do it since we're watching one of his matches together. And this is really the first time we've done this. Do you think it was just not their way of doing business, wrong time, wrong place and his size and his ability to move around, he would have been a natural opponent to make Hogan look good for Vince, wouldn't he?
0: Oh yeah, Absolutely. It just, I think it was a matter of, of, uh, you know, I said all the time, the two Cs, cash and creative. Uh, Doc was getting paid a a phenomenal amount of money from uh, all Japan. He became a huge star there.
1: Allegedly in the $10,000 a week range.
0: Yeah. I know he bought him a condo in Maui, and uh, he was doing really well. And uh, I was really proud of him. But uh, he he just, the time and place is the whole deal. Yeah, he would have been a great opponent for Hogan. Uh, I don't know. I think they would have probably had good chemistry. Doc, all those heels who are wrestlers, nobody had issues working with Hogan because right. they're at the top of the card. They're going, to draw, they're going to make more money. They're going to
1: make a lot of money. And But I just look at a guy. You know, you talked about what a classic match he had uh, with Ray Trailer when he was Big Bubba Rogers. And, of course, Boss Man, man, he made Hogan like a million bucks yes. up and down and all over the place, especially a guy that size. And I think – Well, dude, Dr. Death could have kept up
0: that same pace
1: and arguably been even more believable.
0: Well, you know, we we talked about this before on the show, Conrad, that one of the key uh, requirements, not an option, but the requirement of any great heel is to be able to feed a comeback. That's right. So that's three or four moves set uh, that the baby face exercises on the bad guy is imperative that and the guys who can do that the best are the ones that stay at the top of the card the longest. And that's what... uh, that's why Ray Trader, a.k.a. Big Boss Fan, Big Bubba Rogers, was so effective. He was a 300-pound bumper, and he was a big athlete. You know, played college football, big-time big, right. you know, big time athlete. So that's why the guys like Owen loved him, because he looked like he could kill you, but he wasn't doing it. He wasn't killing you, but it looked like he was, which is kind of the name of the game.
1: Well, as a reminder, as we're watching this show, we're, we're a little under two months removed from Stark 89 where we would see Sting win the Iron Man tournament. He's going to defeat Ric Flair in the final match. As a reminder, when all of this is happening, Sting and Flair are both Horsemen. Now, the terms of winning this opportunity to uh, win the Iron Man tournament mean that he is going to have an opportunity to to wrestle for the world title, and that's what is all going to come to a head here. Uh, Jim, what did you not only think of Sting being in the Horsemen? But effectively the horsemen here being baby faces I mean I, I guess this is really one of the first times that we saw quote unquote cool heels and the horsemen had become strangely enough the good guys here.
0: yeah it was a uh, kind of swimming upstream and for that era uh, because there still was a clear delineation between baby faces and heels uh, as I think they should be today uh, you, should dec- you should be able to, to declare, what you are what your position is and if the fans either accept that position or no uh but I, i'm a i'm a big believer in the baby face heel dynamic uh good versus evil it's part of our human culture it's part of what we do we deal with every day uh in, in some form good good versus evil it may be good uh that we we're, we live in a great house but the evil is we can't afford to live here mm. so that's kind of how I'm looking at this deal doc Look at this strength. He's this kid's smoking 300 pounds. Doc's got him extended his arm, locked him in, military pressed him, taking a walk around, then slams him. Uh, I saw him do that with. Uh, there was a cage match at War Games where he did that with Bam Bam Gordy. He was just his strength was uncanny. You know, he was. Is that he was in that 500 pound bench press range, but he, here he looks real lean. This is probably is it. One of his uh, he'll go on these binges of eating nothing but canned tuna.
1: I don't know that I've ever seen him look as good as he does in this match right here. Yeah, he
0: looks really lean, thick, got, a, got him a win here with a resting hold, which was nice, the resting All-American. They kept everything in the ring. They didn't go outside the ring. Interesting, here's about this. The old school way of laying out a match, these guys have a good first match. Doc wins, uh, and they stayed in the ring. They didn't do anything silly. They didn't take away from the matches coming later. They didn't, they didn't adversely steal material from the main event. It was their match, and I thought this is this kind of how you you book a card.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I guess we should, you know, remind everybody that we are going to get to, um, you know, some of the different results that we that we would get in the Observer. They go seven minutes and fifty four seconds. The match we were just talking about, Steve Williams and the Samoan Savage, two and a half stars. Uh, it would be written in the uh, Observer uh, solid. Uh, but not a spectacular open. And here's the rap video. We're not technically doing a watch along here, but you and I had to sit through this twice with Flair and Sting and these promos doing a, uh, a hip hop uh, very early 1990. But, you know, again, this video to me reeks of, hey, we're trying to keep up with Vince's production, which is a little ironic, I guess, because this is a television company.
0: All right. Well, look WWE for years, and not only within the genre of pro wrestling, but probably say other live events as well. Conrad, uh, their production is is beyond compare. Right? They got they spent millions of dollars on it. They got a huge staff. You know, I don't know how many trucks they travel with now, and all this other stuff. They got all the whistles and bells, and uh, it takes a lot of money to fund that. They got they have a traveling kitchen that goes to feed. You know, the catering's done internally. Yeah. So it's, they, they just go do things in a big, big way, and uh, so nonetheless, I, I one of the highlights of the show that we're watching here now is the fact that Terry Funk was on the show as a broadcaster.
1: Yeah, it's so weird, and seeing Ric Flair as a babyface, you know, I guess we should mention at the end of 89 is where we would see uh, Arn Anderson come back. We're going to talk about Tully and why he's not back shortly, uh, but so obviously there's an idea here to sort of reform the horseman uh sting is effectively the fourth member here and i guess somewhere along the way when maybe arn and tully went north um Flair got really really hard to boo did he know it i mean he was just very easy to cheer yeah, for yeah
0: he was rick if if the if rick had allowed it and gone all the way with it his baby face run uh around this 1990 time would have been uh amazing because he had been around for so long at such a high level, the best in the game. At some point, you got to figure out why well, I don't like this guy. Right. And, and beating up Sting was a way to get him back in that direction. But, but the bottom line is that uh, th- this setup with Sting and the Horseman was, seemed to me was always set up to, to get uh, Sting exiled and set up the more heat for the eventual uh, championship uh, uh, change. Was Sting beating Rick, which was the setup. That's what we're headed for here, the big conference. And we should mention
1: uh, January 2nd, 1990, Aaron uh, Anderson, who had recently returned to the NWA after leaving the WWF, would take the TV title off of The Great Muda. Uh, allegedly, the treatment of Muda, which we've talked about before, pretty a hot topic. Um, I mean, a lot of people just straight up say Muda was buried here because he lost... He had his first pinfall loss in the Iron Man tournament, but then he lost to everybody else, and then you know a week or so later he would lose the TV title um, to Arn Anderson. Mm-hmm. Is how much of that is, is backstage politics? How much of that is Gary Hart's influence? How much of that is just it was time for him to leave the territory?
0: I think it was uh, ill-advised. I think him being Asian was part of it. Uh, you couldn't let a a Japanese guy get over quote unquote, right. You know, we're looking at a ring right now. You got Arn Anderson, Oli Anderson, Sting, Terry Funk and Nate. three, four very Caucasian males. Yeah. Different. The diversities has changed to the better, quite frankly. But, uh, I think there's a little issue there that, Hey, look, there were, there was discussion. We talked about this. It very briefly. When, when Mood would come by the, 12th floor at the cnn center where the office of wcw were in atlanta the women would swoon
1: yeah I, i'm glad you, you mentioned that because you've mentioned it before but it's sort of been hinted at that maybe the booking committee wanted Mouda to be a babyface and saw that it was money in him uh, for one of the reasons you just laid out the women really loved the way he looked and that's a, a critical part of being you know a baby face. so help me understand from the way you understand it,
0: Gary Hart put his foot down and talked Muda out of being a heel. I'm not he- sure of that story. I, I don't know that. It could be that. Could be because Gary knew that if Sting turned babyface, babyfaces, especially in WCW, and unlike uh, Arnold Skolin used to manage, uh, uh, you know, Bruno or Bob Backlund, rather, excuse me, uh, there was no there was no babyface managers, and so Gary didn't want to lose his. You know this kid was red hot, man. I mean, he was one of the top ten workers in the world at that point in time. And he was so young, and we see what he did when he went back to Japan. He became a legend. Absolutely. So uh, I just think there was a lot of uh, unsavory, distasteful feel of uh, regarding Muda. I believed he had been a great baby face. I even mentioned in production in in uh, booking meetings at some point in time. We might want to consider him to be our champion. And I got they looked to me like I had three heads. You know he's a Japanese guy. You know, did you have you forgotten December seventh, nineteen forty one? I said, yeah, about oh my god, eighty years ago. You know, oh my gosh, on. really? It was silly.
1: Talk to me a little bit about Gary Hart. Uh, his time comes to an end here in early January. He parts ways with WCW. Uh, what was sort of the backstory? What was giving him or other the company heartburn?
0: Well, uh, Gary was a very bright guy, and he was a good booker. He good at laying out finishes. Uh, but Gary, like Gary, not unlike anybody else in that position, you know, Gary liked to be the booker. He liked to be in charge because he could take care of his own thing. And that's not, you know, that's not a sacrilegious about Gary, you know, it's just human nature and the way that it is. So, uh, but very, very bright, a, a, a preliminary wrestler at, at best, uh, came out of Chicago, uh, have been around a lot of pretty rough people in real life. Uh, but he became a manager, and they made an exception b- for him, Conrad, as a manager because he was so damn big. Gary's like six-two or three. Yeah, and managers in that day were never taller than their guys they were managing. They needed to look like Harvey Whippleman, pretty much. Yeah. So uh, cornets, Heymans, very unathletic-looking type guys. Sure. But Gary was a big, menacing guy with that goatee and that, you know, those killer eyes and all that stuff so uh i I just think that they're uh, doing the angle now where sting's getting ostracized and, and the crowd
1: is on their feet did
0: you see that right hand of Rick and they laid their stuff in man here you go back and watch this folks you watch flair's first shot salvo and a sting and then the fact they're slapping the hell out of him and they're not work slaps they're slapping his face heavy and hard so it was a that was a good that was a strong strong angle no doubt about it so, you know, uh, but Hart was a, Hart was a brain guy and he was a great manipulator. He understood the lay of the land. He knew how to play the game. So he couldn't be BS'd. And you talk to a, a guy like Court Bowers, MLW company's growing. Uh, he's a big proponent of Gary Hart. And the irony of this thing is also Gary Hart wrote a great book right before he died. And I have never, I've, I've got it. I got to read it, but I haven't read it yet. It's really spectacular. Uh, he'd learn a lot about the business in general, quite frankly. So uh, It has become one of the most sought-after wrestling books around. And why does somebody not, uh, Conrad,
1: get the rights and, 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 re, and redistribute it, reprint it? Uh, I think uh, I think Court has tried for a long time, and for whatever reason, the family doesn't want to. And, and as a result, it's been traded around a lot as sort of an underground PDF. So it's not the same as yeah. actually holding the paper, but you can still get the information and... The information is coming down that Tommy Young is done. On November 28, 1989, while refereeing a match between Mike Rotundo and Tommy Rich at a television taping in Atlanta, Young would suffer a career ending injury. After an angered Tommy Rich threw Tommy Young's way, Tommy's head bounced off the top rope and he was legitimately incapacitated for the remainder of the match. They would actually air this match on December 9th, 1989. And uh, Meltzer would report, sometime in January, Tommy Young is in rougher shape than we indicated, stemming from his whiplash injury a few weeks back on television. He may need a spinal operation, and as we know, that's going to be the end for one of the all-time greats. Where would you place Tommy Young all-time?
0: Top five, no doubt. I mean, you know, one or two, easily, argue, you know, arguably. Some people say Tommy Young is the best referee, and, he, and I'm not arguing that point. He's great. He's a reliable. Uh... He was very animated at the right time. Uh, you know, I, I'm not big on referees overselling things and uh, making a, a mockery out of the out of their position by overreacting with big eyes and you know over the top stuff. Uh, Tommy was smart about that, and so when he did it, it meant something. And I thought he was did a real good job. But he's he'll 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 be one of the top five referees that, of all. Even back in all the territory days, taking all of it for granted. Uh, Tommy was really spectacular. And, you know, I enjoy every time I go to Charlotte or from those conventions or something back in the day. You'd see Tommy there. And it was always nice to visit with him. We're watching a We thought we had a high hopes for Tom Zink and Brian Pillman, two young guys. Look like they're going to live forever, right, Conrad? Absolutely. And they're both uh, no longer with us. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year,
1: it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was
0: 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen.
1: Let's talk a little bit about Carrie Von Eric. It was around the same time on TV, I believe, that uh, Gordon Soly has a segment and Kerry Von Erich comes up, and of course that leads a lot of the newsletters to the rumor mill being, hey, Kerry's trying to come in or maybe about to come in. Of course, most of us remember he did have a run with Vince McMahon as the Texas Tornado, but he never really had a shot at doing anything with you guys here. Uh, Who was high on Kerry? How did the Kerry conversation get started if it happened?
0: I think that uh, nobody nobody was ever really serious about it because Everybody kind of knew the lay of the land there, this injury. And, 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 you know, the drug and alcohol problems were not secret. They're, they're not secret at all. They were, they, they were there and they were very well known and so forth. But, uh, there was never any really, uh, any, any great talk about bringing carry in, there's no doubt in, in his heyday before he got his foot hurt and before he got so deep in the drugs and the alcohol. Was he one of the greatest attractions in the world? Without a doubt, without a doubt, amazing charisma and hell. He didn't know how much charisma that he had, but it was ample, but there, there were any serious conversations brought bringing him in on a, on a full-time basis, at least on that, that ma- that matter.
1: By the way, uh, we're not technically doing a watch along but it is playing in the background and we see a young Mick Foley here as cactus, Jack Manson. Of course, eventually he would go on to drop the last name Manson. What do you think? In hindsight, should he have kept Cactus Jack Manson?
0: It's a hell of a name. He didn't like it. Because I was calling Cactus Jack Manson when we first brought him in from Dallas. And uh, he'd heard of one of the shows back, and he didn't like the uh, he didn't like the Manson part. He thought it had bad connotations. Of course. <laughs> yeah, well, you're a heel, and that's kind of the idea. But I stopped calling him Manson at his own request. So it worked out all right. Uh, We're also seeing
1: the entrance here of, uh, Mil Mascaris and, uh, what a legend he was, obviously a different time in the business. We're going to talk about this match in particular, but if you're going to watch one match on the show, you got to watch this one. Mick Foley has written about it, uh, because of his interaction with Mil Mascaris and it really affected the way he would approach wrestling from then on. But there is quite a spectacular bump on this one as well. Let's talk about somebody getting bumped off, though. Mike Tyson and uh, Buster Douglas are going to have a barn burner, uh, as we know, coming up in Tokyo, and Buster Douglas is going to shock the world. But I'm mentioning this because in February, it's announced that Mike Tyson has been signed to referee a match between Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage on NBC for their main event program with the World Wrestling Federation. As we know, Buster Douglas had different plans. So Tyson would lose. They would get Buster Douglas involved, but when you guys first hear, holy shit, they've got Mike Tyson. That had to feel like a game-changing signing. I mean, we know for sure that the the luck of the World Wrestling Federation would be much, much different eight years later with Mike Tyson, arguably be, you know, the uh, the match that lit the fire of the Attitude Era. But here. 1990, goodness gracious, Mike Tyson is the hottest name
0: in sports. Is he not he? Yeah. He's a, he's also word globally. So yeah, it was big, very timely, uh, good strategic booking by Vince uh, to get Tyson. But the only problem was, is that when he lost his, when he got knocked out in Tokyo, uh, there went the value there, went the value. And so then Buster Douglas seemed to be the new hit thing, but hell nobody knew Buster Douglas even was. So right. it was one of those deals where you're better off or you should we just go with plan a and have Tyson angry Mike Tyson there, the referee? Or do we just move on and say, well, we, we tried it, but it didn't work out?
1: Well, let's talk about, you know, maybe how Ted Turner could have perceived that. Because we know that, you know, when, when years later, when Eric Bischoff has a chance to compete like this, he does. So whereas Tyson is on WrestleMania, that summer, we've got not only Dennis Rodman, but we've got Carl Malone, and we've got Jay Leno, so he's trying to pull out all the stops, you know, to leverage celebrity much like McMahon has for a long, long time. But when we venture into real sports here, now all of a sudden the guy who owns WCW, Hey, he also owns the Hawks and the Braves. So we've got access to whatever sort of mainstream athletes we want. Was there some sort of consideration for if they've got Tyson, we've got to come up with something different.
0: Here? No, not really. Uh, because that would have been all the time seemingly trying to do something. I know. Uh, Yeah, Ted, all this is telling us is that Ted was not involved in the wrestling brand. Right, right. That's really where you are. So, yeah, he could have done something different. He could have called in some markers. He could have talked to agents or whatever and got some guys involved. But that's got to start with some objective creative. And we didn't have that. uh, We weren't in that position right there. That was a big difference, Conrad, in Vince having complete autonomy and the final say on everything. There's a good side and a bad side to that. And, uh, but I- I'm just going to tell you that it was, that wasn't the way it was events or excuse me, uh, Ted, just as long as the ratings are okay and things are what they were, he just didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't get involved. So it, it, we, even when we had the, the 20th anniversary of wrestling on TVS, he was reluctant to show up mm. He just. He, he didn't like being in that kind of public circle. And I don't know that, I don't think it was, a, he had an issue with wrestling. He obviously didn't, or he wouldn't have brought the brand back I and mean, ended up buying the damn thing. So but, but he, appearances
1: but, and things like that were, were viewed as, you know, something that had to be mandatory for him to attend. Like, yeah. I got you. Well, let's talk about somebody else who's not going to be attending and that's Joe Petticino who's made news uh, for some health battles in the, in the most recent year or so. Meltzer would report that he's going to quit the promotion this Thursday, and uh, David Roya-Petticino was asked to turn heel and be a character that would be a cross between a Joe Suzu constant liar, a Geraldo Rivera sensationalist, and a brother love. And since Joe owned an ad agency in Atlanta, he felt that that could affect his outside wrestling accounts and credibility in the market. So uh, that's going to be cited as the reason that he doesn't want to do it. Uh, but it's written in the Observer, quote, Actually, there were several other problems besides that, and the NWA had pretty well agreed to not have Pettacino play the new role, but there was so much personal tension between Pettacino and several other decision-makers, in particular Jim Ross and other members of the booking committee, that he decided to leave anyway. So Pettacino is, uh, man, one of those characters that only exists in professional wrestling. Give everybody <laughs> sort of the backstory of how he got involved in the business and what a lot of fans who grew up watching wrestling in Atlanta may remember about his programming.
0: Well, Joe was on channel 69. I believe it was there in Atlanta and on Saturday nights, he bought the time on the independent station to have a, uh, a wrestling block. And he'd use, uh, territory, uh, the TV, weekly TV shows. that weren't airing in the marketplace. So his first run for a lot of people. And, uh, you know, he and Bonnie Blackstone who ended up being his wife. Uh, We'll do the wraparounds and do some interviews from time to time, add some commentary. Uh, It was a very, uh, it was a very uh, folksy uh, show. As we just saw Cactus Jack, uh, not Manson, just take a bump off the apron to the unprotected floor with his spine and his head striking the floor. And uh, it's, uh, you wonder about the, we talked about sometimes about CTE and the things Mick has endured. You know, this is another illustration. We don't know that he got a concussion on that move. But I can't it, imagine how he didn't. But if he didn't, he missed a hell of a chance because Mill was very uh, offensive-minded. We noticed.
1: Yeah, he he's a- sold absolutely nothing, putting no effort into anything, b- absolute bare minimum. Typical Mill Mascaras match, and I mean, he doesn't even try to hook the leg. Anyway, Joe He's he uh, oh, yeah. entrepreneur. Good yeah,
0: radio, done a lot of radio work. I think he bought a couple of stations down south of Atlanta. Uh, unfortunately, as we talked about on the show a few weeks ago, Joe had a had a stroke uh, in the last few weeks, several weeks. It's getting better, which is great to hear. You know, Joe and I were never uh, uh, enemies on this situation, uh, but the issue, the demand for Joe by Turner was neglig- was almost uh, infant. You know, just wasn't there. However. Uh, he if he he might have had a chance if he wanted to tweak his character and they gave him some ideas what the character could be like but you know uh he didn't he really believed that it was going to be uh uh advers- adversarial to his career i think it would have made his career even bigger because people could have cut of wink with him and laugh with him and here's joe being a bad guy oh. or being being critical or whatever it would have given his character more uh, range and more depth he just didn't feel comfortable doing it so Uh, it moved on. And I don't know that Joe was big on the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the booking committee and all the stuff's going on. So, you know, who's this band? we got a band there.
1: Yeah. We're going to start an angle here where Cactus Jack is, uh, going to get into it with Wolf here. And you can see he's already got wrestling gear on. So it's a way to introduce a new character. Yeah. I guess we should mention that, um, the Tom Zink and Brian Pillman match over the mod squad got one star and went nine minutes 52 seconds. Very
0: sloppy. sloppy.
1: And Cactus Jack, by the way, mill is 51 here. They go four minutes, 51 seconds. Uh, just a crazy bump, two stars. But seriously, the bump is just unbelievable. It's sick. Um, and, and, and Mick talked about that match a lot. He's apparently not a big fan of Mill and it, At one point, he says, uh, Mexican legend, and I use that term lightly, Mil Mascaris, Uh, he says, Mascaris sucks, and the match is going to suck. This is how he's describing this day with Jim Cornette on site. And he says, Jimmy nodded, but I wasn't done with my honest assessment of the man who had been a legitimate legend, sports hero, and film star in his native Mexico for over a quarter century. That may have been true, but in my dealings with Masqueros in Texas, I found him to be selfish, redundant, and lousy. Jimmy, why is he coming in, I asked, and Corny quickly let me know, oh, it's just for a couple of shows in the Texas border towns. This didn't make a lot of sense to me. If they wanted Masqueros to draw frowns uh, into towns with heavy Mexican populations, why couldn't they just put him on before the televised matches started instead of both stinking up a nationally televised clash which was TBS's most heavily hyped wrestling show, and Sinking My Career, which he had been doing so well. Jimmy, I'll do it, but I can't promise it won't be a stinker. And Carnett seemed to understand my feelings and said that as a color commentator, he would try to make me look good on the show. And it just goes through the entire day, and and basically, Mill, not really wanting to cooperate, really had his his heels dug in on, on what he wanted to do. Um... Is that sort of par for course with Mill Bruce? Sort of says that that's about what all dealings with him were always like.
0: Yeah, uh, that pretty well goes along with what we've, what we're going kind to of expect. Uh, you know, he he protected his gimmick, uh, and he thought that you know any, a little, uh, any loss in any shape, form, or fashion was uh, ridiculous and sick ridiculous. Here's some more uh, Norman the Lunatic and uh, what's that? What's that lead singer for ACDC? Looks, look! look at oh, yeah, yeah. knickers and his uh, yeah. and a little hat uh
1: quite the look here
0: yeah well the deal is this is more trying to be like WWE and uh it, you know the, the vignettes are, again vignettes are good folks but it all depends just to have a vignette doesn't mean it's going to be good the idea of having a uh, have a, having vignettes and having them episodically produced you know i think we could do a lot better job of that in AEW where uh, where we're having some, uh, you know, during those picture in pictures or a little one minute vignette during the show uh, to tell me who these guys are. You know, we're a young brand there and people, we take it for granted if people know who these guys are. They don't, they don't know who all of them are. We're still building that uh, situation. And from the looks of things, there's a lot of wrestling companies right now that have talent that the fans don't know well enough to make it the all important emotional investment in. Yeah,
1: it's an interesting time in the company. You know, we're, we're trying to serve a lot of different masters here, as we see uh, Norman the Lunatic.
0: Getaway uh, toys and things, passing out Valentine's, it says. We, here's a guy that was a great heel. When I saw him in Calgary as Mock and Sing, my vision for bringing him to, to WCW was that of a heel. For some reason, the overt desire to change things and to make it your own is was this as prevalent there as, as not uh, We make him a, a lovable baby face and as you notice Kevin Sullivan's working with him and Kevin has, has beaten the holy hell out of him Oh
1: it's wide open and Kevin Sullivan as we're watching here him him really lay the wood to uh, Norman. He's a member of the booking committee. Mel would write the booking committee has been trimmed down to just Jim Ross, Kevin Sullivan, Rick Flair. Terry Funk, and the late Jim, uh, Jim Cornette. So Oli Anderson is out, and Jim Hurd and Jim Barnett aren't taking as active a role in things. The late Jim Cornette. Well, I think he means because he's going to quit. Oh. Uh, really, the power right now is still Flair, Cornette, and Sullivan as far as putting things together, but Ross and Funk are producing the TBS and syndicated TV, respectively. Talk to me a little bit about you know the booking committee, the ins and outs where Ole's out and you know heard is out and barnett is out but everybody
0: else is in
1: this almost feels like musical
0: chairs a little bit yeah it's discerning uh uh confusing uh you didn't know who, where to go the wrestling business has always been wrought on paranoia and and uh rumor the old rumor in your window thing that you guys have perfected uh but golly it's just the more indecision, the more change wrestlers don't take to take well to change. Change is perceived by most guys in the business as a negative. And I think that's bad. So, uh, and it, cause all change isn't bad. And so anyway, we're watching uh, Sullivan now. Sullivan, see, we go, we talked about how, where the matches were taking place. Now they have a match that is, uh, on the outside and the referees on the outside with them, which is a no, no Referees should not go on the outside to count unless the real stipulate such, they should be keep his ass in the ring and they should count these guys out. So, uh, and the referee's out there, uh, Nick Patrick, a good referee, probably doing what he was told. I guess we should mention um,
1: this match that we're watching right now uh, between uh, uh, Norman the Lunatic and Kevin Sullivan. It's going to go seven minutes and 15 seconds. And Jim, the reason they're outside of the ring is it's a false count anywhere.
0: But but well, still, but still, I, I get your point. Well, I didn't realize this. I, there you go, stepping my own Johnson. Well, and, you know, and what? not a lot of people can do that, by the way. But you uh, can,
1: thanks to our friends. Well, you know who. <laughs> uh, Listen, let's talk about this booking committee because it does feel like um, you got a lot of really brilliant wrestling minds in here. I mean, yourself and Terry Funk and Ric Flair and Jim Cornette and Kevin Sullivan. How is this not a home run? Just too many cooks
0: in the kitchen? I think so. volume. Too many cooks in the kitchen. And, uh, you know, you try to uh, make sure you're not uh, creating a conflict of interest. Uh, you're your objective and all those things. But it's just the wrestling business spreads uh, that kind of those kind of thoughts. And so, I don't know. I just it, – it, you're right, all, a lot of good guys. But – they, you have to understand. Everybody's got to. I guess here's the deal: there were compromise made. Compromises were reluctantly done, and then it was like the the goddamn politics in our in the United States today. Well, okay, I'll do this for you, but what are you going to do for me?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not a. It's not about being a public servant. It's about being a professional politician, and we had some professional politicians, including yours truly, on that booking committee. I ain't going to run away from the reality of things. But it's the same deal. We had a little power. We could do some booking. And, you know, you wanted to make sure everybody was treated fairly. So, But we had the guys that that was going to be the top of the card. I mean, Flair was on the booking committee, and he was a top guy. He was the top guy.
1: When you run through that list of guys, you know, for a long time, this territory in theory, and obviously it's different now because it's owned by Turner, but Dusty Rhodes was a big part. You know, he was the backbone of, of this booking for a long time. And now, of course, he's wearing polka dots on the other channel, running around with Macho Man, getting ready for WrestleMania six. How often in these sort of booking uh, booking meetings with with the different members of the committee would somebody say, hey, what would Dusty
0: do? Never.
1: Is that out of... um, Ego. That's what I was going to say. Yeah.
0: Where it's all, well, fuck him, he didn't know. I mean... Well, here's the other thing about Dusty's bookie. Dusty's booking was done by Dusty, right? And he had guys like J.J., who was an amazing number two guy, right? To keep the record straight, you know, and so forth. Uh, and all J.J. was J.J. was very detail oriented, and every Booker has to have that guy. That's very detail oriented, has great product knowledge. Some do, some don't. Uh, but but Dusty didn't go through a committee in that regard. And when, when Dusty was put into a committee, he didn't like it. Sure, he's used to writing his own music. Right, I get it. I really and truly get it. So, uh, uh, but he, nobody said nothing about that. That, that would have been recognizing uh, his, his clout, his stardom, and so forth, and nobody wanted to give up that in the meeting. It's just It's silly to th- talk about it like that now, but it was a fact.
1: Well, and that type of stuff still happens today in every business. Let's talk about Tully Blanchard. Lots of uh, speculation, you know, what's going on with Tully and Arn. Uh, he was famously not on the Survivor Series 1989. That's where Arn would finish up. Tully, conspicuous by his absence. And then Arn shows up on TV here. Uh, but we've still, even though he's the television champion, uh, here we are in February, we've still not seen Tully. Meltzer would report, while this has not been confirmed as of press time, I believe Tully Blanchard will be debuting for the NWA Clash of the Champions and Corpus Christi. If he's not there... Well, the chances of him returning to the NWA would be pretty slim. He said several meetings with Jim Hurd over the past week, although early meetings saw the two sides far apart on contract terms. Supposedly, the NWA offered 156 k per year, which would be slightly more than his WWF income was as tag team champion. If Blanchard is in, he would be uh, one to get involved with the Horseman heel turn if that does occur. Anyway, Blanchard has signed by Tuesday. It ends the long saga of Blanchard giving his notice to rejoin. Uh, of course, he was fired by Titan after giving his notice for testing positive in a drug test and then not hired by the NWA in late November as promised because the organization feared public relations problems if word gotten out, that they had hired someone who failed the drug test. So after a threatened lawsuit by Blanchard against the NWA, plus some continual pushing by the committee to bring him back, The two were at least close enough to negotiate. Um, Allegedly, and this is the week after the Clash of the Champions, this will be written in the Observer, Blanchard was in the dressing room at the show waiting to go on. Basically, a contract dispute took place since Blanchard had yet to sign, and he will not be coming in. The way the story was explained to me is that when the two sides first met the previous Wednesday after Flair had finally convinced management to bring Blanchard in for the clash. The two sides were far apart enough on money to the point that they figured no deal would be reached. TBS was reportedly offering 156k a year, which is truthfully a fair figure for a wrestler of Blanchard's level and slightly more than he was making in the WWF. Blanchard wanted between 250 and 300, which is what he was originally promised when he jumped from the WWF by the end of the week. The negotiations were back on, and while no contract was signed by press time last week, the uh, least, according to the version I received, is that the sides had come to a or the last maybe had come to an agreement of 156k per year for 176 8 So they bring this contract, Corpus Christi, with the idea being he's going to sign it. They're going to do an angle later that night, but instead of it saying. 156k for 176 dates. It says 156k for 300 dates. Of course, Blanchard is going to balk at that, saying, I agree to do 176. And the NWA says, well, this deal is only on the table until 8pm when oh. the show starts. Well. And if you don't sign it, you're out. Do you remember this Mexican standoff
0: in the, in, backstage at Corpus Christi that night? That was a deal. You was going to take care of the deal. It was, going to, it was going to be his thing and get this done. It was a cluster. And uh, that's not how you negotiate, you know. Uh, and you don't bait and switch. Uh, we could have used Tully, and Rick did the right thing by endorsing Tully. I don't think I don't think anybody on the committee had any issues whatsoever in bringing a great talent like Tully Blanchard back into the fold.
1: But all trust was lost when they agreed to bring him back at a certain number, and then pulled that deal. And not only did they pull that deal, but they cut Orange money too.
0: Well, the 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 uh, the thought was, I believe, from Heard and upper management, and the accounting people, was that uh, uh, three grand a week would be our top offer for for that level, and the only guys that would make more to be maybe Flair and you know staying Luger type guys, singles. But so they were offering them three three grand a week for uh, that makes them one hundred fifty six days year. But still,
1: when you think about three hundred dates a year, first of all, WCW never ran anywhere close to no. that. So maybe if Blanchard had thought that through, you know, he might still would have signed. But on general principle, he probably feels like, "Fool me once, and now here you go, fool me twice." It's just knowing what we know of, of Blanchard's personality today. I can't imagine how that went over well back then.
0: It's just it's, all Conrad. Bottom line is just bad business, bad business practices, unprofessional. But again, if you go back into that early that era of WCW, look at all the cooks that passed through the kitchen everybody gets a chance to season the soup. And at the end of the day, the soup don't taste worth a damn. So we see Terry Funk, you know, sort of being a stick
1: man here. He not only held the microphone for the horseman and Sting earlier, but here he's doing it for
0: Lex Luger. What'd you think of Terry Funk, the quote unquote broadcaster? One of the great entertainers of all time. Without question. One of the great entertainers of all time. Uh, One of my favorite broadcast partners I ever had. He was just, he's just so he's a whole lot like uh the greats that i worked with paul Heyman, jim cornett and of course Jerry lawler all wrestling people all made their chops in wrestling as as very successful heels so they knew how to tell a story they knew how to get the heels over in 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 a in the pr- effective way but uh, terry just he had great psychology in the ring out of the ring the whole nine yards so he was just, he was tremendous, uh, Conrad. He's, there's really nothing in wrestling as far as performing uh, that Terry couldn't do. Uh, he was excellent in all phases of the damn thing. So, you know, I, I, I love him, and I still, he's a hes a national treasure in my view. You're doing this show on commentary with Jim Cornette.
1: Uh, you've done it with everybody, um, especially these days, thanks to Blue Chew. Talk to me a little bit about doing commentary with Jim Cornette. I mean, he is a big personality and that feels like it would be the perfect compliment as a color guy if you're doing play by
0: play. He's excellent. He was just absolutely excellent. Uh th- he was uh a, so again, natural instincts, his intellect and his natural instincts always uh, uh, pulled us through. Uh I really enjoyed working with him. He he was on the committee, he knew the stories. He knew the backstories. He knew where we were going. Uh, he and I had good chemistry. I felt like we'd known each other for years and years since uh, the days in the mid-south, uh, when he came in for cowboy and, and cowboy put to uh, Robert and, uh, uh, D- Dennis together, uh, and created that whole group of was our manager, a uh, very visionary booking, but Jimmy was a, a very talented Conrad look. I know he had a run here lately with NWA and there were some issues about that whatever. Uh you know, he's very outspoken. He speaks from the hip and uh, no he didn't have a uh, when he doesn't have a uh, uh somebody to, to vet him a little bit. There's no filter with Jim. No filter, baby. So, and I got used to working with that. But he's a, he said he could work for anybody right now and be a great commentator. No doubt about it cuz he understands wrestling. And he may not, you may not agree with his philosophy of wrestling, that's your prerogative. But he's a, he's a, he's a very, very, very talented guy, and like Funk was just a perfect fit as a color guy. And the uniqueness of both those guys—they're both very, very nervous because they were new, and they didn't want to look bad in front of their peers and the audience. So they both all worked really hard, as we see. Two large men, one very redheaded man that looks like the Undertaker, me Mark, and of course, uh, dangerous Dan Spivey, dangerous Dan, the left hand man,
1: and I guess the uh this version of skyscrapers exists because Sid is out with a punctured lung, right?
0: Probably, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, again same old crap here, hurt in out. Hey, the the team of Dan and 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 Mark Calloway, who will become the Undertaker. Uh, I'd love that team. They're big and they're athletic. They're imposing. And they're the kind of guys, when you walk through the airport, you're going to notice those two cats. So we got them booked here with the road warriors. So that'll be a no-sell fest. In the write-up of this match, Meltzer would say,
1: me and Mark has been a pleasant surprise. Of course, as we know, in November of this year, life's going to change for him in a big way. These guys are going to go seven minutes in what Meltzer would call a typical road warrior match. It's going to be a DQ where the Road Warriors get the win. Uh, The post-match stuff is really good. Melzer would say match is fine. Post-match brawl was certainly stiff and realistic-looking. Two and three-quarter stars. I mean, what a presentation. You know, at this point, they've been around for a few years, but the Road Warriors with the black shoulder pads and the silver spikes and the jacked-up dudes with face paint and crazy hair.
0: And Paul Ellering. Paul Ellering is always an underrated Almost seemingly underappreciated element to the to the presentation of the LOD, the the Legion of Doom. Sell me on
1: it. I wasn't a fan.
0: I didn't understand it. Because behind the scenes, he kept them grounded. He made sure they made their planes. He did plane reservations. He was a real manager. He really took care of his guys, hotel reservations, all those type of things. But he was, a, he was that rudder in the water. So if, if worse came to worse, one of the boys was hurt or unable to compete, you could get something out of Paul. I always like Paul. Wait,
1: you know what I just realized? Paul Ellering is like Paul Ellering is to the Road Warriors what Brandon Cutler is to the Bucks. There you go. You know, I mean, he's uh, the real life backbone behind the scenes. But if he's <laughs> getting there in the scrappy, will by uh, God,
0: Conrad, you're getting you're a little nippy today.
1: Hey, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what you and I are going to be doing this weekend. You know, we've got uh, we got a big night last night. Uh, AEW Dynamite was here in Huntsville, Alabama. We had a lot of fun with our great pal, Tony Schiavone at Stand Up Live. And and here in just a few hours, you and I, we're going to be getting on uh, the old bullet plane Mm -hmm. as we make our way to see Kenny McIntosh. We're going to be in London. We're going to be in Manchester. We're going to be in Glasgow. Tickets are on sale now. Just look for Inside the Ropes. And uh, you tell me, man, Kenny has got it together. I'm looking forward to this trip.
0: Yeah, Kenny's a, a real entrepreneur. He's the Vincent Man of Europe, and uh, he he does a good job. I've gone, I've done many shows for Kenny and his crew. I've, they've become friends of mine, and T uh, and uh, you know the all the, all the girls, uh, Jennifer. Uh, he's got he's got a great staff. Does Kenny, and they treat us great, and they're friends, they're family. So we're gonna be uh, Friday night. We're gonna be in London. And then Saturday afternoon, we're going to be in Manchester. And Sunday afternoon, we're going to be in Glasgow. And then after Glasgow, they're going to fly us back down to uh, Heathrow. Conrad's coming home, and I'm going to work in Austin, Texas. And believe it or not, American Airlines has a nonstop flight from London Heathrow to Austin, Texas. And I'm on that son of a gun.
1: I'm I'm flying to Dallas, and then uh, I'll come on in to Huntsville. So we're all over Texas that day, but... We hope that you guys will be all over the UK with us. Come see us, London, Manchester, Glasgow. Tickets on sale now. Just look for Inside the Ropes. And we should mention it was just announced that AEW is going to be coming to Rochester. And you and I have yet to announce our rescheduled date. Of course, we were supposed to be there uh, just a couple of days before uh, you, you would debut on TNT. Uh, back this past October. So we've rescheduled it because we had a little birdie tell us that AEW was coming to Rochester. So the night before AEW, come see us at Comedy at the Carlson, uh, right there in Rochester, New York. It's Comedy at the Carlson. You can get all your ticket information uh, anywhere you see JR social or, of course, our uh, Twitter account at JR Grilling. We'll have all the info on how you can come see us in Rochester. Let's talk about this show in particular, though. You know, we talked about the fact that you did some commentary on this with Jim Cornette. You also do commentary with Paul Heyman, then known as Paul E. Dangerously. You know, in this era, we'll call it 1990, who did you enjoy doing commentary with more, Corny or,
0: or James E.? You can't deter- de- determine it because they're both so much alike. you got a southern crazy person and a northeastern crazy person bruce has a theory he says they're
1: really ones like superman and ones bizarro superman they're just the northern or southern (laughs) version
0: of each other yeah and they have cornet has a propensity for polyester and Heyman has a propensity for cheap wool they both buy their suits on sale I, i suggest they both may have a coupon or two in their past uh but look they're both highly intelligent funny naturally witty Great, great product knowledge. And uh, so that was something I thought was, there's no difference. I mean, there's not a lot of difference in them. People can say, well, I like Paul better than Cornette. Like, and Cornette gets some down votes now because he's uh, so controversial on his own podcast. And he's raising the hell on that all the time. We're getting on, on the social media. And nobody hates Trump more than Jim Cornette, I don't think. Let's talk about
1: Gordon Soley. He's on the show, and he's doing a miscasts. lot of backstage work. Yeah. But is this, you know, I'm glad you said miscast. I think a lot of people would have liked to have heard him on commentary. Did the Turner execs no longer have confidence in him? No. Is, is that based on age, style, or his occasional... Ageism. Okay. It, it wasn't his fondness for the drink. He was drinking back when he was a star there. Well, I, but every now and again, there there's a thing of sort of, as we like to say in the South, keeping
0: it between the ditches and then just showing up a sloppy mess. Yeah. Was that the case for Gordon? No, we, I just think they didn't have confidence that he could have a, he could overindulge his drinking. Could he keep his drinking under control? It's not, look, people don't understand doing television. is not a low pressure job, right? Doing what we're doing right now today, uh, ad libbing and being extemporaneous is not a low pressure job. You got to create on the fly and there's and you, when you're doing it live, like we are right now, live to tape. You can't. You don't want to make any mistakes, so uh, or at least limit, limit them. But I think they're just Lyria Gordon. If my influence there, without well, me sounding like a, a dick, uh, they wanted me to be happy, and they they had this confidence in my decision making. And I believe that Gordon had a place on TBS. I thought he was just as influential there as just like Chris Berman working the uh, for ESPN this weekend at the Super Bowl. He's off the regular line. He doesn't work much anymore. He lives in Hawaii. He does a few things around football season. And then all of a sudden, that's what you got. And uh, so I, I, I think Gordon had a place on the team. And I thought we did, We, you know, he did the, that clash with me in uh, New York, the New York knockout. I quit matching all that stuff. I enjoyed working with him. Now, he was one of my heroes. And I had the ability to get him a, a booking, so to speak. But uh, but Gordon, in that era, in that 1990 time, would not hold a candle to Cornette. We, we're watching this match here
1: and we see a referee jumping around here, and you and I talked about him a little earlier. You dropped some knowledge on me. I think this referee's name is Mike Atkins,
0: Yeah. and uh, you said he was I think he was I think he was uh the great Joe Hamilton, the assassin, who's on our staff there. I think it's his son-in-law. I had no idea. You see see how uh, the uh, Mark and Dan are letting the, the, L- the LOD get their spots in? Yep. The double clothesline. All the things they're known for. Uh, a while ago, uh, Mark, Mean Mark, a.k.a. Taker, it was it was walking the top rope and uh, going old school, and he got arm-dragged off the top, which is, you ain't going to see that anymore. But boy, what an athletic son of gun he was. Their doomsday device on Spivey. Animal goes to the cover. With well, the referee's back, is turned. Here comes uh, Mean Mark with a chair off the top row. Well, off the top with a chair, and then of course, uh, now Eldering's separating himself. From, Look Teddy, at the crowd, man! Teddy Long crowd loves this stuff. Pretty remarkable to see,
1: you know, such Hall of Fame talent, especially when you consider just how, you know, deep the ties are in professional wrestling. You know, we know that. Rachel Ellering is now doing her thing. And of course, uh, Hawk is no longer with us. Spike pile driver probably meant to hit that one on the chair. Uh, but still the post-match brawl here is what, uh,
0: Dave would put over so good. And man, this they're is... the, they're hitting the, uh, they throw down boy here, Spivey and Mark are hitting, uh, the, the road warrior so hard to this chair, the chair is bending. Look at that, look at that chair, the angle. If you watch this back, folks, watch the watch Spivey beat the holy shit out of Animal and Hawk with that chair to get them some serious ass heat. And here's the thing about that. A lot of tag teams were intimidated by the Road Warriors. Yep. By their size or their reputation and their status on the card. But boy, uh uh Spivey and and, and, and mean Mark were there to do business, to help get themselves over and have a physical grueling match, and they did that. I was uh, the the closing moments. Of that was what was what was money, in my opinion.
1: A- absolutely, and we saw a couple of months ago uh, when the Undertaker was on Steve Austin's podcast on the network. They actually talked about those matches that he had with Spivey against the Road Warriors because he was still young and new to the territory, and uh, the, these are, are sort of made men and 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 big badass dudes with a reputation. So understandably he was curious as after they come to the back after a match like that hey how's this gonna go
0: well, no, no, I, I don't i don't think the road warriors knew their their limitations they're tough guys and, it's, and of course animal was a little bit more down to earth than, than hawk because uh, hawk sometimes was a little bit out of his mind and, you know level mike was a good guy but golly he could be he could be a, a terror too but So they intimidated, as I said, they intimidated a lot of people, not Spivey and, and Mean Mark. And uh, I, I just thought that they laid their stuff in so physically that uh, it shows you that old theory, that old cliche of maximizing your minutes. I don't know how long the post-match uh, uh, melee was. It wasn't that long. But it made it. But it made it. So they maximized their minutes in that portion of the match as we get ready to see another tag team match, the Steiners versus Doom.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was no question in this era, you know, who had the better tag team competition. You know, is it the WWF or is it WCW? To me, it was clearly WCW. And this is a big part of why the Young Steiner brothers here with their Michigan Letterman jackets are arguably, you know, some of the most over babyface tag teams ever. They're real men. And they're going to get in here and really tear it up at a high level with Doom. And this is back when Doom has the mask. And that's sort of the idea. As we're putting, you know, the titles on the line and the master on the line, so it's going to be uh, quite the
0: situation. I remember when Cowboy hired uh, Rick Steiner, Rob Rick Steiner, uh, and then Scotty came in afterwards, the younger brother, and we got uh, uh, Rick came in from Vern, Vern Gagne, in AWA. You know, they're Michigan All Americans, Big Ten country. Uh, Gagne was headquartered in, in Minneapolis, Saint Paul. So we get them from Vern from his school. He didn't have a place for, for uh, Rick. And so he, we got him down here. Ricky, we always call him, but Rob Rick Steiner. So Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner made, uh, made, the, made their mark, man. They have a great legacy. They, and I'll tell you, some of my favorite tag team matches I ever called were the Steiners versus Doc and Gordy. Oh, yeah. Magic. That's magic. Respect was there. It, it, the uh, being unselfish was there being physical was a must because they didn't want anybody to say that they didn't delay their stuff in or they weren't physical because brother, they were uh-uh, brother.
1: Well, it was also fun to watch the Steiner brothers against any Japanese talent because I guess in that era, you know, certainly that all Japan style was sort of what wrestling fans in, in a more modern era would call strong style. Um, the heart of the matter is those guys were working, quote-unquote, stiff or snug or whatever,
0: and, man, that's right up the Steiner's alley. They're ready for that all day. Yeah, they loved it. They loved. They thrived on it. They, they, it it made them better, made their matches better. But, look, you don't think that uh, Ron Simmons and Butch Reed didn't like it physical? Oh, of course. Good Lord. So you're right about the tag team thing. Now, here's the issue about the booking. If, if the booking had been more linear and you had a way to go from one point to another point, without deviating and stopping and this, that, and the other. There's a rugged-ass uh, collar elbow tie up a rugged lock-up, as you're going to see, between Ron Simmons and Scott Steiner. Neither one gave a damn inch. Uh, but the deal is, the, the, like I said, the Steiner's example. They'd get on a roll, they'd win a few matches, and then all of a sudden if, if they, the booking committee would feel compelled, we got to beat them. And there's where we messed up. And I'll admit that we messed up. Uh, but the, but when you get everybody's got a different opinion, uh, so you're arguing about a team doing a job. It's not about doing a job. It's about doing a job at the right time, and you can't do 50-50 booking. You, wrestling fans want talents to get on a roll. They want talents to, to build momentum. They want to go along for that ride. They want to take that emotional investment they've made in a talent and travel, and you can't do that if you don't have that emotional investment in them and believe in what you're seeing, so uh, I'm a big fan of what these guys are doing, but they weren't booked great. Nobody was booked great in that era because it started and stop because we kept changing head coaches. And, there, and we know what happens in football, right, Conrad? You get a new coach, new offense, new new He's in his own people. Yeah. You know? So this
1: is a three star match. They get 13 minutes and nine seconds. Rick and Scott Steiner are going to keep the tag belts. So we know Doom is going to unmask. It feels like there's a few different iterations of Doom. We've got doom with woman we're gonna have doom with uh, teddy Long. we're gonna have doom with masks and capes then we're gonna have doom with just masks and then doom booking with no masks booking you're right what's
0: wh- we just weren't sure what to do with them well, is- of course not there's too many dis- we've said it a million times here yeah a goddamn booking committee is wrought with too many cooks in the kitchen we got to be fair to this guy we got to be fair to that guy you know, can we beat the black team? Can we, well, we can beat the Japanese team, or we can beat the Japanese guy. It's so much bullshit. Instead of going on the merits of the individuals, there was agendas, agendas. And when active performers are involved in booking and creative, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes that booking is not objective. And this we're seeing great examples of teams that were big and strong they could get over, but they got short change and they took a wrong route to success. They weren't going to get there w- with the way they were traveling. The started to do these drop kicks, cleared the ring with both big guys. They take one bump, not 20. One, Two great drop kicks, outside it goes doom, and it's not repetitive, repetitive, and, other, and they're not standing outside waiting to catch somebody who's going to run and jump over the top rope. That's the most ridiculous spot in wrestling to me is how a group of guys could get into a covey uh, a, a plethora of talent standing on the outside in one spot, even though they're adversarial oftentimes to stand there and wait for somebody to jump over the top so they can catch them. It's totally illogical. It takes too long to set up and it, all it's just a, and it's not even new anymore. So I, I, have a, I don't, I don't like that. So we're not seeing that here. We're seeing a better story told that doesn't have interruptions here, there and yon. And now of course the story is uh, uh, the doom doesn't want to lose their mask. And so what are, what are the starters trying to do? Take the mask off.
1: Let's talk about woman. We saw her earlier. She came out seemingly for no reason and sat and watched Dr. Death uh, run through his opponent, the Samoan Savage. Uh, and I guess in this era, we're trying to figure out exactly who she is. You know, we, we, we tease that maybe she had some sort of an interest in Rick Steiner. And now maybe she's scouting other talent. And we've seen her with Doom. Obviously, in real life, she is the wife of one of the bookers and uh, on-screen characters, Kevin Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Was everybody just a big fan of, of her look
0: and thought yeah. she could contribute and she's here anyway? Well, it had sex appeal to, a, to a primary primarily a male demographic. Sure. When you got a lot of men, 18 to 49, watching her show. Uh, be- oftentimes, beautiful women are very marketable. She certainly, Nancy certainly was that. She, she knew her way around the business. She married into that business. Uh, she'd been with Kevin a long time. He'd been bookers and top heels and things. So she had she she knew what was going on. But I'm sure if she had not been married to Kevin, uh, the booking might have been different.
1: Let's talk a little bit about who we just saw finish up. We mentioned earlier that Sid Vicious is on the sidelines here. Mean Mark comes in. He's only been with the company for a short period uh, of time here. When did you know? that hey this guy's going to be something special i mean obviously the undertaker thing is going to change his and every wrestling fan's life and what like nine months from now but when did you know well, just when you saw him the first time the heart punch or booger red or walking the top ropes when did it click for you
0: punisher or something punisher like? dallas sportatorium walking the top rope up and down feeding a comeback at six nine big athletic natural talent and he had, he had it. Hard to describe it at that time. You knew there was something extraordinary there that was waiting to be discovered. But you can't get a... There are not too many 6'9 uh, athletic guys. He was lean, probably 290. Uh, looked phenomenal. So, yeah, he's... Uh, it didn't take long to know that this guy has something. Now, unless he's got character flaws we're not aware of, there's something issues on a good locker room guy. Uh, he can't keep his word. He can't tell time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, he's going to be special. And, of course, he, he's, he'll he'll get the biggest Hall of Fame induction ceremony, or he should, when WWE decides to induct him, that probably anybody in history.
1: Sort of working backwards, you know, the Lex Luger in-ring segment with Terry Funk, uh, Meltzer would write this. He says, Next came an interview with Terry Funk and Lex Luger. The less said about this fiasco, the better. This was the worst interview Luger has done since turning. He was out there forever and seemed to have nothing to say. He also talked about all the accolades he's received in his wrestling career. Don't let him go uh, out here live without a rehearsal, or at least give someone else an idea of what point he's supposed to make on his interview. Funk kept trying to wrap him up, and it looked worse than amateurish. As for funk, it's bad enough when these wrestlers endlessly switch back from face to heel every few months, but when the announcers switch from face to heel on every interview, that's a bit much. Yep. So, a, a little critical. I know you enjoyed working with the Funker, but one of the big criticisms that wrestling fans have these days is, oh, everything's on a script. You know, I don't want guys from read from a script. I want them to just shoot from the hip. mm mm-hmm. Uh, he used to be better back then, and, and there's a lot of argument for that when you see, you know, masters like Arn Anderson or Ric Flair do it. But when you see a guy like Lex Luger, who's positioned as a top guy, get out here and struggle, maybe you start to think, well, shit, maybe scripts aren't you,
0: something. You don't put him in that position, Conrad. It's pretty simple. Right. You don't book him that way. He's not a goddamn lineman. He's a quarterback or whatever. Uh, I normally use a lot of football metaphors, but I went to the Super Bowl Sunday and I got football in my brain apparently. Uh, but the uh, he, don't put it in that. I've heard cowboys say this a million times if you, if you can't throw a punch, for the love of God, don't throw a punch, right? Work on it in your own time, not on my TV time, right? Uh, and so that's a situation, uh, that you know, you just don't put him in that position, but. <clears throat> The general logic is, is that, well, we've got to have him on television. I'd rather do a pre-tape. I'd rather do something where you can control his verbiage and protect the talent. We didn't do shit to protect Luger in that interview. He was never a good interview. He never became a good interview. But we kept sticking him out there, and he, he seemed like he had to follow Flair more often or not. You try that on for size. You, you want to, you're going to be compared to something. Don't be compared to one of the greatest talkers of all time. Because it could make you look bad, inadvertently, but but look bad. Well, let's talk about the
1: segment before that. We we sort of talked about the beating that Kevin Sullivan was putting on Norman the Lunatic, but what we didn't talk about was the ridiculous ending, where Sullivan runs into the women's room, and they have one of the NWA's secretaries run out of there shrieking. Mm-hmm. That was Janie Engel. Oh, that was Janie. Yeah. So eventually, love Janie. We got uh, Norman the Lunatic to go in there. And then he comes out. Uh, Apparently, he's victorious. We're going to see his hand raised, but he's got a toilet seat on his arm. And we would see, you know, seven years later, uh, Kevin Sullivan would have a series of matches with uh, Chris Benoit, and they would wind up in the restroom. So, did Sullivan just really have a penchant for (laughs) bathrooms? I don't know. What's
0: the deal? I don't know that, or I have no idea. they just trying to come up with a finish, and it was not a good finish. You can't see the finish.
1: Well, I guess my question is they're going for funny ha ha. Yeah. And I've heard Dusty talk about, you know, the best way to book a card is you have something for everybody. You book it like the circus. You've got the lion tamers, you got the clowns, mm-hmm. you got the trapeze
0: artists, you got if you got good something clowns for everybody. Yeah, but Conrad, you don't just have anybody be a clown. You gotta have a good clown. Uh, hey, hey buddy, come here. Get over here. Hey you, yeah, you fat guy. Get down here. Put this put this nose on your face. You're a clown. Uh, th- th- that's what we're, we're miscasting people. The roles of a clown or the roles of whatever are fine, but if you're not good at it, it still sucks. Right. So, uh, but Meltzer was very objective to this show. I, I got it. I, he's right. In a lot of things, but you know, again, we're all over the road here, man. We're are we, are we going to push the Steiners. We're going to push doom. Uh, is, you know, you got, you got this magnificent tag team division that could have been built to something significantly big skyscrapers all these cats man
1: yeah the road warriors yeah i mean on and on so let's talk about something that we're seeing on this show really for one of the first times i think it probably first started popping out in 89 and it would carry on a little bit here in the 90 the ruse marketing over the uh the posts yeah the ring posts and it's very reminiscent of what we would see in boxing sponsorships right you know not only would we have the logos on the canvases but over in the turnbuckles you know they would have uh, another place for logos and things like that for branding H- how does this come together you were involved in, in the television sales turner home, and, turner home
0: entertainment they brokered a deal with yeah. ruse and, yeah. and a few others in this era too yeah, they, they they were just following along emulating everything wwe could do or did or does whatever and, you know, find a shoe sponsor, find this, find that. But that was a mandate from upper management to, to, to better monetize what we're doing. And uh, so Turner Home Entertainment and subsidiaries of that unit, right, sales branch, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that, put that deal together. So, you mm. know, and, and, and hats off to them. It, was, it, it gave us a little bit of credibility that somebody that you've heard of actually wants to be a part of our show. As an advertiser, that I think that helped us a little bit of perception.
1: Absolutely. Well, since we're talking about it, you mentioned, oh, we see Rick Steiner trying to work the mask off here. Um, you talked about, hey, they're trying to emulate everything that uh, the WWF, I just see, just yanks it off right in the middle of the match. Butch Reed has been exposed. Uh, so anyway. What a great talent he was, boy. You know he invented Netflix? Huh? That was his idea. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that Vince would never sell sponsorship on the ring mat, the canvas.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: What, what, what's the thinking on that? What's his theory on that? You asking me? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it came it's up. Vince's theory?
0: Well, it's just it, today it, he didn't want to. Yeah. I'm not I'm not giving my territory away. I was prime real estate. I'm going to, if I'm going to use prime real estate, I'm going to use it for me. It's just interesting that we see that a lot with
1: WCW. You know, Halloween Havoc and Ruse. There's lots of sponsorship opportunity, and even on the on the canvas as as WCW's days would continue on.
0: Meanwhile, Vince McMahon never never went for that, which you would think he, would be right up his alley. I've heard him say it: prime real estate belongs to us, and that's kind of where he left it.
1: Well, we see the. Uh, the doom match coming to an end here after the roll-up and unfortunately ron simmons is going to have to unmask of course we know ron's going to go on to be a great single star become the world champion butch reed maybe not so much i think what butch reed is probably most famous for besides being a member of this doom tag team is allegedly he was going to become intercontinental champion and then he didn't and there's the whole story of Honky Tonk Man and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and Macho Man, et cetera, et cetera. Why did Butch Reed not do more as a single star here with WCW? Uh,
0: Great question. I don't think it had nothing to do with his ability whatsoever. Uh, I think it has to do with his reliability. And there are certain times in his career where, you know, Butch could, you know, get off the grid a little bit
1: well i mean famously he supposedly according to legend no shows the WWF show where he was going to become intercontinental champion they have to pivot and wrestling's changed forever as a result did he
0: have uh sort of a penchant for no shows you, you just weren't sure no i just think he like anybody else that had drug and alcohol issues okay where they they're not they become unreliable okay and what do i said what have i told you before my most important trait uh for to scout somebody got be reliable reliability yeah and when Butch lost his reliability, uh, it, it, you know, and him being a black man didn't help him. To be honest about it, you know. You're saying in that era with the booking committee yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yep. Yeah. That cowboy came in, and it was a murmur, murmur, talk amongst yourselves. I'm making a black man the NWA champion, or the world champion. So uh, you know, you can figure that out. Look at how I'm sweating, Conrad. I am sweating from that head, and it was hot, it was hot down there. Now you, since we're talking
1: about the way you're dressed here, uh, as you are looking uh, dapper down, you mentioned earlier when you and I were watching the uh, the promo that we're seeing a clip of now here on the show
0: that something about Rick's gear here stood out to you. Oh, yeah. He's wearing his pair of sunglasses. He came to TV one day, and I bought a pair of sunglasses the week before at the Sunglass Hut in the DFW Airport. So we get to I get to Atlanta to do TV. And uh, he sees me with these sunglasses on the week before, and he says, Hey, 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 Jim, you got those for us, JR? Uh, you, you got the sunglasses with you? I said, yeah. He said, I need to borrow them because I, I left them on a plane or a limo or somewhere. So I gave them to him, and I, 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 no, he bought them. And that, so he's wearing them on the show right here. So you go back and look, at these are JR originals from the Sunglass Hut in DFW. But Nate liked them, and they fit him well. He looks good in them. Hey, and here's the thing we're going to show. Flair hit sting with the B best right hand sucker shot. Boom, right there. I mean, he stepped through, he popped his hips. I mean, that was a real bar fight right hand, not a working punch. So it was a heavy duty angle.
1: Great stuff. Go out of your way to see this. What a memorable moment. Uh, if you were growing up as a wrestling fan in this era, You know, it's one of those deals where we've talked about it a lot, you know, you know, we may dismiss this or that, but then we say, oh, but this was real. Yeah. And the physicality here and just, you know, the, the fervor by which it's carried out, you know, Arn and Sting and Oli. I mean, Meltzer, when he's writing up about the angle, he says that Oli deserved an Academy Award for his performance. I mean, it was just very, very well done. Can't say enough nice things about it. And that's going to set us up for our main event. And our main event is. Well,
0: Oli did that. You know, Conrad, we talked about this before. Booking. Oli booked himself as a heel. Right. Because he was good at it. He was a natural heel. He didn't play a role. He was just Oli Amplified. And that's what made it so damn natural. And you got Nate being Nate, And he ain't heard Arne say nothing. Arne's the assassin. He's a silent killer. He'll say something when it means something. There you got Gordon Soley, Olie Arn, and Nate. Is that not classic wrestling? Damn right it is. And uh, it said, look at that picture we're seeing on, the sc- on your, your giant screen. I think I'm going to drive you a movie. Uh, I can park my truck over here. Uh, that It just looks right for Gordon Soley to be on TVS. And I'm sorry I'm soft-hearted, but I respect the man. And I believe that th- that's one thing our business may be lacking a little bit is a little bit of respect.
1: And that's what Flair's here talking about now. You know, that this is the premier wrestling group in the world, and we allowed you to be a part of it. And you've got until the end of the show for you to give up your title contract three weeks from now at Wild Thing. It's kind of like
0: uh, Chris Jericho gave John Moxley an ultimatum. There you go. And it, funny how things come around, they go around, as they say. So it's just, again, playing on human nature. The human events. The sting was a threat. And he jeopardized the safety of the championship around Flair's waist. And so the, the, the change was was coming. And this really, this injury really uh, hurt Sting in the long haul. Yeah, and of course,
1: there's a, a bit of a spoiler for you. Sting is not an active participant in the match. He's supposed to be. You know, the idea here is that it's going to be Flair and uh, Arn and Sting. Uh, instead, Ole's going to slot in there. Uh, it's going to be Rick, Oli, and Arn. They're going to take on Buzz Sawyer, the Dragon Master, and the Great Muda. And I know what you're thinking. Isn't that heel team versus heel team? Well, yes, it is. But at this point, the horsemen have only been heels for a few minutes. Uh, leading into this, they were still a baby face. And the match is not going to be a good match. Um, things definitely get uh, changed in the middle because of the sting injury. You could see everybody sort of stalling and then very quickly sort of scrambling for the finish. How quickly did you know, but I mean, could you tell when you're just
0: watching it and no. oh, he's screwed? No, I, well, I knew he was hurt. Obviously the severity and what body part was it? His quad? What is his patella? Was it something else? Was it ACL? What was it? Uh, so, it, but I couldn't diagnose it by eyeballing it. Right, right. But you knew something was up that was serious because the, the process of completing the angle had ceased. He couldn't walk. He couldn't put weight on it. He had to have help standing up. That's where Wahoo McDaniel was there, and a bunch of other guys were there. So, uh, I, I, no, it was, uh, I didn't have a clue. I, and I got the bad news, and everybody else got the bad news later that night at the hospital, which we all went to. We, we just saw a promo
1: here for the great Muda. Then very quickly, the uh, the Dragon Master... And now, Buzz Sawyer, who I don't think a lot of younger fans are nearly as familiar with as they could be, one of the most interesting characters in
0: the history of wrestling, was he not? Oh, yeah. yeah, Unpredictable in real life. a Believable heel. Uh, had some of the great battles with Jim Duggan uh, in Mid-South, especially they had some hellacious battles in Houston where they literally beat the hell out of each other. Bloodbaths, physical nasty nastiness. Old and, school look, too. Yeah, old school heel, thick. Uh, not a bodybuilder, but it looked like you know he's like, he could tear your ass up. He could. He ha- he delivered the best power slam of anybody I've ever seen. I agree. He snapped that son of a bitch off like like he like it was born to be his. And then Kendo Nagasaki, the Dragon, uh, what's it? Dragon Master. That's right. Kendo passed away a couple of weeks ago. All it was known over the years behind the scenes as one of the most legit, toughest guys in all of Japan wrestling. Really? Yeah.
1: I had no idea.
0: Yeah, he was a policeman. They called him, and he was a badass.
1: Man, how much are they doubling down on Flair here? This is the too much fourth time we've seen Flair. We saw him in the segment, you know, the they kicked Sting out. Okay, here's They're the thing: recap, yeah. backstage
0: promo, and now this pre take If you want to, if you're on the committee and you want to get over with Nate, hey Rick, let's put you here. We're gonna do this promo with Rick. Now, Rick would probably tell you, Rick. if Somebody said, Rick, you think you're being overexposed here? So now, if you say that. You got to justify to him and everybody else in the committee what you meant by that. Are you saying that he's not over? Are you saying that he can't get it done? No, asshole. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you you can't force feed people down fans' throats, you can't do it. And we were that's where we were with Rick. So to make keep Rick, that was the whole deal. Let's keep Rick happy. Well, Rick, I never noticed knew Rick was that high maintenance. Quite honestly, on that kind of shit, I really didn't. He wanted to do business and him being overexposed is not doing business. Here we see double a, uh, followed by Oli led by flair to the ring. The six man tag. Flair's got the NWA title belt or world WCW title around his waist. Uh, rocking the TV
1: and Oli is back on TV and we're about to have six guys inside of this cage match. And this is a different type of cage match than we had seen from you guys. But
0: again, this style cage, very reminiscent of the WWF Big Blue. Yeah. Well, it's easier to climb. It was a, it was a good case for a big man's territory. Easier It's the like TV through, too, as well. Yeah, correct. And uh, Buzz a typical heel. A lot of guys are uncomfortable working with Buzz because they, they weren't sure they could quite trust him. He's a little unpredictable. Then you got the great mood of getting introduced, spitting out the green mist. I love this guy's game, man. He was... He was a revolutionary. He was ahead of his time, and maybe my idea of him being a baby face and being the champion somewhere down the road sooner than later was it wasn't met with great uh, support in the committee, uh, quite frankly. But I, I always loved his game, and and I always said he was going to be he's going to be special. And of course, he goes to Japan and becomes this amazing legend that they revere like he's a god. We should mention Meltzer would report the great mood to quit right after the clash as well. ...and missed the rest
1: of the week. However, the NWA wants him back... ...and he's agreed to meet with him on Monday. If Muda returns, no doubt he will also be turned face... ...and they'll be dangling the carrot... of a Rue's shoe deal for him... ...should he agree to return. Several months back, the NWA was talking about... ...coming out with a Muda comic book for kids... ...and when and if he ever returns... Uh, ...that will no doubt also be discussed as well. Williams, as mentioned earlier, is gone although he has quit the NWA before and come back. He's got a great Japan deal right now as he's under contract to tour for both All Japan and New Japan this year. The first wrestler to ever cross the promotional boundaries, Williams, had he stayed, was probably going to be turned as well after the pay-per-view show. So it's sort of fascinating that both the great Muda and Dr. Death finishing up here you know, two really top talents.
0: You got to wonder what their 1990 could have looked like had they stuck around. Two guys working a less than full-time schedule in Japan, getting premium money in Japan. It reminds me of what can be done in AEW. Guys are making a great living working a very part-time schedule at best. Would you agree? I would agree. And the fact that If you're a married guy, you got a young family, uh, and the wife wants you to be home more. You, they want you to attend a little league game or a recital or whatever, the school play. You got a better chance of being able to do that by being in, uh, uh, you know, by being home. And so that's the thing about these guys. They, you know, Doc would go over to Japan and work, and you know, come back and spend a week or two in Maui in his condo, train, eat tuna, get angry. (laughs) But yeah, this is. This, this match was st- – they say styles and they clash. This match, you're like, here's Buzz Sawyer and Flair exchanging chops. I was excited to see
1: this because I don't remember ever seeing it before, and you know that neither one of these guys are
0: going to pull a chop. No, no, no. Man. It's a mono-a-mono mono thing. It's, it's a deal where they'll, they're, they're the kind of guys, Rick and Buzz – and ten years, say, hey, remember that match I had in Corpus Christi? We beat the shit out of each other. Absolutely, and that's what they did here, folks. Is watch these shots. Then, of course, you got Kendo Nagasaki in. You want to be careful not to piss him off. But the bottom line is, he's getting shot just as hard as Buzz. How how great was Flair in '90? Here, he feels well,
1: like he's got another gear compared to everybody. He else.
0: does. least special. He called me on Super Bowl Sunday. I, uh, what do you think about his uh, his uh, commercial?
1: Yeah, it's it's really cool. We're we're excited that uh, that he was in that. I mean, we.
0: I'm a hummus guy.
1: You ever uh, eat hummus? Of course, it's a staple at the Flare household. You
0: know that? <laughs> I like uh, that. Uh, they make a pineapple uh, jalapeno hummus. I like. So, so I'm uh, Jan. Before she left me, she got me eating the more hummus, a little healthier. But anyway, I'm happy for him, and we had a great visit. And he had a, he had he got treated like a king down there in, in Miami Beach, a lot of the NFL Network business. They love him. You got to understand these guys that are ballplayers and announcers. Just think of how old they were when he was in his prime. Right. They love him, and they should love him. He's the best ever. We should mention, you know. Um- well, how about that hamstring elbow? And Arn Anderson sold that son of a bitch like a million bucks. Selling is the key, baby.
1: This match, as we said, six minutes, 10 seconds. They're going to go home very quickly in just a moment here. You see Sting trying to climb in. Doug Dillinger. He's okay right now. There's Wahoo McDaniel trying to pull him down as well. So all the officials trying to get him to come down. There's Brian Pillman trying to help out, trying to keep these guys separated. Flair and Sting don't want to wait three weeks for a wild thing. They're ready to do it now.
0: And as you see, they're pulling Sting down. Everything's good. He's Okay. They're trying to get you back away from the from the cage. You're not in the match. You're not a horseman anymore. You're you're persona non grata. Sting's pulled back by by Wahoo, Brian Pillman, Doug Dillinger. Yeah, crowd's going Gaga as Pat, Pat Patterson would say. Please Gaga! And now Sting's got to make one more baby face charge, which is t- typical as the ten punches in a corner. Only just called a nice spot there for Buzz to do something, take a backdrop in the in oh, the ring on top of his head. Yeah. So now always dropping the elbow, very basic stuff, can't see through it. And now, uh, we're waiting for Sting to make flares on the second turnbuckle, waiting on Sting. Nobody again knew exactly what the hell we're doing here. It it went south.
1: Yeah. So flares are standing on one turnbuckle, Moodle's across the ring, standing on the other. Now Sting's making the second charge here towards the
0: ring. He's running through like a football drill. He's running by and through everybody. And he jumps and right, right he, there. He's right, hurt. He jumped to get in the ring, and there's for the patella, The kneecap popped. It, it displaced, tore, went off the side of his
1: leg. Flair swatting at him, and look, look at the confusion in the ring. Nobody knows exactly where to go or what's going on or what to do.
0: Buzz just gives the Arn a, a suplex. Sting now is really in amazing pain. I he's
1: having to explain to everybody ringside. You see. Buzz Sawyer here. Go to the top of the cage. Yeah, like Superfly style. Yeah,
0: and down he comes. Buzz is fearless, man. Nobody home. Great, great at feeding that comeback. Being a believable heel, he he could sell well. He had, he checked all the boxes with him. There's a wahoo giving Sting a very, I'm sorry, but you're fucked. Look, man, look at Sting. His break was here. It was just time, and he knew he was screwed. He didn't know what was, how badly he was injured, but he knew he was injured enough as there's the old double A spine on the pine. But uh, the Steiners are there now. Are they, are they? Yeah. And so this is gonna be our finish. And it sucked, but they did the best they could with it. Arn gets the Arn's gonna get the pin.
1: Dragon Master into the into the cage rather poorly and then boom. D D T from Arn one two three while the while the heels stand and watch. Because they're ready for the post match angle that has not yet happened. And they're trying to communicate that to Flair, because he's like, Wait a minute, what the hell? Come back down here. They open the gate and he realizes, wait, we're short on time. We gotta do this. And Flair beelines, man.
0: Look French. how committed he is. Look at that forty time. They can make the combine look good. But Flair runs, jumps over a, a Wahoo, potatoes Wahoo. I remember Wahoo talking about that after the show. What are you doing? What are you thinking? <laughs> So then we go off the air with a big fight. And you know, what a crazy way to go off the air. And I got I, mean, and I, got, and I got producer credit. Yeah, you're the first name listed. Well, thank uh, you very much. I'm on a booking here. committee. I'm, I'm exercising my strength and my influence. Well, there you go.
1: <laughs> what a remarkable way to go off the air, though, you know, with this mad dash, Sting and Flair, trying to keep
0: separated. The guy that was striped shirts that walked by us there was a yeah. the great Gene Anderson.
1: Oh, wow. Mm-hmm.
0: God, he was a tough guy. Woo. So let's just
1: sort of set the backstage here, or the backstory rather. We've got, uh, it's 1990 on the other channel. We're setting up for Hulk Hogan to sort of pass the torch to a neon, painted up, baby face superhero, the ultimate warrior. Yeah. And here in the NWA, we're trying to do the same thing, but instead of doing it on April 1st, we're hoping to do it at the end of February, and we're going to put the passing of the torch on the shoulders of our biggest star from the 80s, not Hulk Hogan, but Ric Flair, and we, too, are going with a younger, crazy-haired, neon, face-painted, baby-face sting. Better worker, better athlete. No doubt. No, Not arguing it at all. But it was supposed to happen at the end of February. Mm-hmm. Instead, it winds up happening in July. I think most people... After they see the injury to Sting, they assume he's going to be out seven, eight, nine, ten months. He makes it back in record time. The match at Great American Bash was tremendous. Talk to me about though, you know, how much it hurt the promotion and or Sting not having it happen at the end of February.
0: Well, everything was built, Conrad, for the crescendo. Uh and you know, it was already promoted. Look at Tony. Look at the haircut. Maybe get a haircut like that nowadays. I don't want to pay for it. Uh, but it, it, it was a. Uh, it, it was the time. It was his time. It, everything had been built, positioned. Guys put in front of him, doing all these things uh, to make it more challenging and daunting. To put the to put him to put the, the championship that Flair held so uh, embraced so much in jeopardy, but then it all went to hell and that one hop up on the cage where his patella went to hell. So it was a bad, bad break. We had to basically start back over with him, tell another story, get him rehabbed, and uh, we could have probably done a better job of uh, weekly rehab videos, uh, better produced, well-produced, to show how hard he's working to get back for you fans, so to speak. The little stingers are waiting, blah, blah, blah. And, oh, look, the little stingers was something I started, and all that was was, a, was a stealing material from Say Your Prayers and...
1: your Survivorables. Yeah, yeah, that's
0: all it worked so was us man
1: by the way um we should mention that's not the only injury but it is the only injury that most people talk about brian pillman uh got banged up on the cage for real uh he was smacked in the eye yeah wound up uh, juicing for real hard way cut needs to go right to the hospital afterwards and get stitches uh so uh that finish man a hot finish and uh rick would write about it i didn't know he'd gotten hurt he dropped to the floor tore his patella tendon and as he's walking up the ramp limping i'm thinking he's just working so i run and tackle him wide open on top of the (laughs) ramp and start beating on him and he says rick my leg's broken please get off of me and uh he says you were gone for a year but it was all my fault uh, you heard it initially falling off the cage, but it sure didn't help me jumping on top of you. <laughs> so uh, we're set now. Uh, we know we're going to have to call an audible. Meltzer would be pretty critical of the direction that they're going to go because, as we know, Sting is out, so they go
0: with Lex Luger. And Luger wasn't ready. He wasn't ready skill set-wise. He wasn't ready getting being over-wise. We were force-feeding Lex Luger. It was so obvious that there became a backlash. It was not an organic push to create a baby babyface persona that everybody could rally around, and uh, you know there were better options. I, I would think that we thought it through, uh, but the Luger was the guy who was standing there. Uh, we got to go with Luger. Why do we have to go with Luger? Why can't we all sit down and brainstorm this this uh, catastrophe, this this cluster, and come up with another plan? So so at the end of the day, we want to get Flair stronger than ever. Beating people. And when Sting comes back in July, people will be salivating because Flair will be red hot, and Sting will be returning. It, that was the storyline. But we didn't, you know, we took a lot of we took a lot of Flair success for granted, I think, too, and then overbooking him and overexposing him, and I don't know. It just was a cluster of errors um, uh, on a, from a creative standpoint. It shows you how inconsistent creative can affect your brand. Right. You know. You think. You think the WWE stock is going to be down because creative is red hot? Of course not. Creative solves much, many issues. And when somebody gets hot and you can run with them for, it's like we talked, we talked about this the other day. And I was talking to somebody in uh, in Miami this weekend about that. Maybe Rick, we'd start an angle. Uh, uh, we did the, the, the talk about the, when we did those rumble shows here yeah. lately, an angle started summer slam in August they blow it off, and, and not blow it off, but at least have a crescendo match, a deciding a deciding match, and maybe a blow-off in in January. So now you wonder, will this audience today, will they withstand a, four, a five-month build before they get their payoff? I say they will if it's done correctly, and the stories are provocative, and that something's new added to them. But we seem to be believing that What the uh, Twitter and social media says, Conrad, nobody's got an attention span anymore. They have a great attention span if it's good shit. Absolutely. If it's not good, then, okay, what's next? Well, what did you think of the show
1: we just watched? Mouser says, it's been a long time since I've disagreed with the majority viewpoint on a show. On the plus side, the improved graphics made the show look like a WWF Saturday Night's main event. The interviews and character development openings were also a step in the right direction even if many would find them too WWF-like. Right. However, as far as quality of matches goes, this was the weakest NWA Big Show going back for at least a year. Even though purists may not like the Norman Angle, since Norman is a comedy figure and kept in a certain spot, I found the finish funny, but the match was terrible. Funk's grill with Luger was terrible. The horseman angle was brilliantly executed, but this was not the time to do it. The announcing, particularly Jim Cornette, was top-notch. Hey, Cornette had so many zingers, I had to watch the tape three times to catch them all. <laughs> Ross did nothing to hurt his rep as the best announcer in the business. Thank you very much. However, there's a line between advertising and annoying,
0: and the endless plugs for the 900 number were oh. truly annoying. Absolutely. You think you're annoyed listening to it? I was equally annoyed having to pitch the a sh- a shit, and that was a mandate, man. That was like so many times an hour or something. It was Ridiculous where that became a big deal. Did he get the mentions for the hotline? In they're looking to make man, they're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul, find a new money stream anywhere he could get it. And the, and the 900 number, uh, had was having some success and and it was it was, it was cash right then, you know, well, dollar ninety nine or 99 cents a minute or wherever it was. So, uh, it, it was I'm with Dave on that. I, I, I with you. We, we we shoved it. Fans don't want anything at any era. To be force-fed or or demanded that you like this or you dislike this, let them make their own mind up uh, with with a in a fair length of time. Not this week, maybe not next week, but in, over the next several weeks, then we could determine if you like what we're doing or you don't. But we got to have a little bit of a little bit of time to let it evolve, and we don't get that much anymore. So I didn't I didn't the show was I didn't like the vignettes. Uh, I, I Norman. Uh, at the zoo, it wasn't that funny. And they're too damn long short intentions, fan theater here, folks, 30 seconds or a minute. all you need a minute vignette. Well done is great. I don't tune it out. I'll listen. I'll retain the information more often than not. But when you get the two and a half, three minute vignettes, you lost me.
1: Melzer would say, I don't blame them for not having a backup plan because of Sting's injury. These things happen and it isn't anyone's fault. The timing was unfortunate for the NWA. It was especially unfortunate for Sting. But even if he had not been injured, the entire promotion was hanging from the babyface side on just one guy with the turning of the number one and number three face at the same time. And the next step, Flair versus Luger match, is another example of this problem. For the short term, given all the available options to save February 25th, this is the best option. However, for the long term, if Sting's injury didn't wake the NWA up to this fact, they'll be asleep forever. They desperately need a babyface superstar, better yet, two or three. If Luger wins the title or even if Flair retains, the NWA only has one match capable of headlining for three months or even six months until Sting comes back. And while Flair and Luger can put on good matches nightly, they've already been doing it nightly since mid-December, and all these turns have to be a turnoff to the casual fan and a total confusion for sporadic fans. So that being said, Dave is really thumping here that we have got to have another babyface superstar, and it feels like you had a good idea with Muda, but the patience had just worn thin, and we couldn't couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again?
0: Nobody wanted Japanese babyface Conrad. Let's be honest about it. It, it, There was not objective booking in that regard. Uh, He was a natural... The other thing about that, the the sting match, you know, it could have been a big thing where uh, you, it's easy to go with Luger, but what if you're going with multiple people? What if you go on like a three-way match or a four-way match and Flair's is raising the holy hell about it. Cause he's got to beat three guys or two guys or whatever. And he does it. Uh, you know, there's, there's things that could have been done there. Look at that array of talent we saw on that show. You're telling me there's no potential uh, babyface stars there. Of course, that we couldn't have used. Come on, man. It was a fact that, again, when you get a, a strongly uh, wrestling flavored committee of active performers, it can be very challenging. And I think that's what we see very, very uh, obviously, very clearly uh, with our booking committee at that point in time. It was very, very frustrating. And and, and then for me, I would they would leave the booking committee. Cornel would go back to Charlotte and Claire would go to Charlotte. Terry, go back to Texas, uh, you know. So who stay, Who lived in Atlanta is going to stay to finish the formats? Right. Not me. And, uh, and I, don't, I didn't mind the work, but the deal is, look, if, you're, if you guys are going to leave on Friday afternoon so you can get home and you're not booked this weekend you, so you can get home, that's cool. But don't, don't bitch about how the segment runs because you weren't here to, have, to give any feedback to it. All you're doing is giving me elements, not putting the elements together. When you called this show, you were 38
1: years old. I'm, uh, I watched this show with you through 38 year old eyes. If you could go back and tell 38 year old, you something different that you saw, you know, mm-hmm. with all your experience since, what would you have done differently? If you're on that committee, you had an opportunity to make a new baby face superstar. Well, who would it have been?
0: You saw, uh, what I would have done differently. Personally, it would have been used less pronouns. I know he'd joke about that, but when you say "they did it," who are they? Because the, in the in the a, in, a, in the heat of the moment, fans yeah. need to know your names. Uh, you know, Rick Flair's the greatest of all time. Sounds better than he's the greatest of all time. Yeah. So if you walk by, if you're walking in the, in, in the kitchen and just walking the house, and here's what I say: He's the greatest of all time. So you wonder who the hell is he? Right. Who are they talking about? Well, but Sting, Rip Flair, it's a different ballgame. So that's what I would have done there. Uh, I would have, I would have Muda was the guy, right? If nothing else, Flair and Muda could have had a killer match. And don't you agree?
1: Well, it just feels like if you were trying to, maybe when the Horsemen start jumping, uh, Sting earlier, maybe Muda makes the save. Muda just got beat by Arn Anderson for the TV belt. And they become their brothers in paint, and they've had issues
0: before over the TV mm-hmm. belt, but now they could get together and come against. And- we couldn't do it that night because nobody knew all these missing things. Sure. But after the, after the fact that Patella was diagnosed as what it was, his time on the shelf was going to be what it, what it was diagnosed to be, then there we are. But uh, there's this, you know, to set, if I had the whole card in front of me, could I pick out something? Hey, look, uh, a Scott Steiner wouldn't have been a bad challenger. Right. There were other things we could do. We had two weeks to get somebody as hot as we could, but not a stranger. Scott Steiner wasn't a stranger. Rick Steiner wasn't a stranger. No. What about Rick Steiner going for his first uh, first world title? That's a pretty special uh, deal. And he got his brother that can all set the horsemen, you know, Oli and and Arnold's guys. So it it made a little bit of sense. But what we did, uh, screwed Luger because he wasn't ready, and people got a bad impression of him. And even though he's worked working with the greatest of all time, there's only so much fruit you can get out of some of these berries, man. So I I, I, I like to uh, – I just it wasn't a good idea. We had bad booking, but it was the easy – here's what it was. It was the easy booking. It was like, oh, got to be Luger. Well, yeah, it's got to be Luger. Why? Because we don't want to think harder and go deeper in this idea, this concept. Everybody's got to make their plane. Is that what we're talking about here? So I, I'm – i was very disappointed in my work at that point in that committee it wasn't fun to be on it but they had to have a record keeper when they left to go home somebody had to get the formats done and 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 that was oftentimes tony and me tony's a great help in that regard he's very smart in that area well
1: as we know tony's going to be coming back to the company after wrestlemania that'll be his last show but wrestlemania six you know is is sort of the uh uh, what's going on on the other channel. And the timing is interesting because we talked about it earlier. Their biggest name from the 80s, Hulk Hogan, passing the baton to uh, the Ultimate Warrior. And and here, your biggest name of the 80s, passing the baton to Sting. But instead of it happening in February, it winds up happening in July, a few months after the Ultimate Warrior had already been crowned. Do you think that was on your radar at all from a a, a promotional standpoint that we're going to have the new young hot thing and then you, you weren't first there. Warrior was.
0: Uh, yeah, it was. A, it was, We wanted to beat them to the punch. We wanted to get our roll out our new model, our new uh, poster boy, because we knew that our poster boy was a much better athlete, sure, much better performer than their poster boy. Absolutely. So, uh, but the timing just got, uh, went to hell on, the, on that patella injury. So, yeah, we, it was obviously on the radar, and we had the chance to get ahead of the curve. Sure. But, uh, but didn't didn't obviously didn't work out that way. Well, it worked out for us this week, and we hope that you
1: guys enjoyed us visiting Clash of the Champions 10 on the 30-year anniversary, and what a special show it was, Sting, getting kicked out of the Horseman. Yep. Next week, we've got a big Q&A episode. I saw some of the questions. They're pretty good ones. They are. I'm looking forward to it. Hashtag Ask Jim Anything is what we'll be looking forward to, and then we'll have a whole slate of shows coming your way to finish out. February, on into
0: March. It's going to be WrestleMania season before you yep, know it. Yep. And we've got some big ones we're going to be covering. A lot of good year. ones to talk about. I want to real quickly just mention my thanks to all the fans that are buying their sauces, barbecue, ketchup, mustard, uh, beef jerky, all that stuff on uh, jrsbbq.com, jrsbbq.com. And we're soon going to have a uh, the new book. is going to be available on our site where you can order it and uh, it's going to be a package that includes some shipping, uh, uh, some premiums, and, and most importantly to me, a personalized autograph. So uh, it's going to be a real cool deal. That's coming anytime. Bookmark it or whatever you guys do to remember where the sites are, JRSBBQ.com, and, and we uh, certainly appreciate your support.
1: And the book is awesome, by the way. I, uh, I thumbed through it again on my most recent travel weekend to Las Vegas, and I'm going to finish it out while you and I make our trip uh, across the pond and every time i think man i can't believe you wrote that i see something like that in the next
0: chapter this is as close to a tell-all book as i think i've seen in wrestling yeah well it's a truth book i know i'm telling all uh, i'm telling the truth i'm telling you how i felt i'm telling how the closest people in my life are affected by my career which is very selfish of me at times i i tell you about how i uh, was diagnosing my own sleep apnea with crown royal and ambien uh, things of that nature that shortened my life, being an idiot. But uh, the, it's a great story about this, this, nobody's going to talk about the relationship with Vince like I am because nobody has had a relationship with Vince like I have for 26 years. And uh, I value that relationship this very day. It may sound crazy. I talk about Austin. That whole, the book goes through the fact that he was getting burnt out, frustrated, didn't like the creative, going home, coming back, going home, that type of thing. And then finally getting to WrestleMania 19, having a panic attack, uh, anxiety, whatever the hell it was, uh, serious, uh, nonetheless, and him having his last match and making sure I didn't say anything about his last match being his last match. So there's that. And then of course, uh, the, the Bell's palsy issues, how my wife stood beside me, and then finally uh, getting that phone call from the Norman police that she'd been involved in an accident and I needed to get to the hospital right away. So uh, it's got some heavy-duty stuff in it, the Attitude Era. It's a hell of a book, Conrad. I don't, I'm, I'm patting myself on the back. and I shouldn't be, but I'm very proud of what we did, and I, I'm working on details now to do the, uh, the audio book. So that's, that's going to be a challenge but, because there's so much sensitive material. I flew from, uh, I told you, this made the, this, somebody wrote this on one of their sites where I started crying on the plane because I, I, was, I wasn't just bawling out loud, loud, real loud but I had so many tears from my eyes I couldn't read. So I, it took me hours to get through with the two or three chapters of the, of the very first of the book. So it's a lifelong, I, I will never write anything like this again. This is it. And I hope that folks will give it a shot. And Conrad, I'm glad you liked it. And and uh, the guys that are reading it, the advanced copies, uh, seem to all be pretty happy with it. They're not just kissing my ass. They like the book.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, you, I feel like I know you pretty well, not only because I've, of- listen to your podcasts and 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 read your books and and read your blog and, and and you've been the voice of wrestling for my entire life but even i found something new seemingly in every single chapter where it was like yeah i didn't know that so yeah. go out of your way to get it we're going to be promoting it a lot here on the show uh, it is going to be the best wrestling book of the year without question and, uh, the rumor and innuendo is that you're going to be promoting it across the country. So stay tuned.
0: Yeah. Big time. We'll
1: have some details as you're making your way around the world to, uh, promote AEW. You'll be promoting the book as
0: well. Absolutely. Connie. And I tell you, I want to thank, uh, uh, Tony Khan for, for, for being so generous with TV time to let me mention it. Yeah. And that's, he don't have to do that. Uh, that that's not part of my deal, but he does it because he's supporting my efforts and he's a fan. And, uh, so I'm, a. Uh, I'm I'm very excited about it. So, folks, uh, jrsbbq.com soon to have the books. Maybe the time you hear this, it's up there. But uh, I know we're working on it feverishly. Should have it done any day now. But uh, it's getting to be grilling grilling season again for me and Conrad. We have barbecue tonight. We did. We had some ribs, wings, and
1: turkey. And I suspect that we'll have a little more of that before we uh, hop on the plane.
0: Uh, we should needed well, it's needed
1: and we hope <laughs> that you guys need a little more jim ross in your life next week it's every thursday on westwood one on your ride in tell a friend hit the subscribe button follow us on youtube follow us on social media at jr grilling and uh tell a friend about your new favorite wrestling show man only on westwood one every thursday grilling jr with the voice of wrestling jim ross all right man so we're wrapping